Hello, Podicumans, and welcome to another episode of the Podicesis Podcast, a podcast about what Christians believe and why it matters. I'm Brett Maddox, and once again, we are joined by Alan Kaysen. Alan, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing great, man. It's good to be with y'all. Awesome, awesome. Uh, Jim Morrow can't be here today. He's unable to be with us uh, today. He's uh, taking care of a family issue. Uh, but we are joined by Dr. Kevin Watson. He was the acting director at the Wesley House of Studies at Truett Seminary at Baylor University, and he's the pastor of discipleship at First Methodist Waco. How you doing, Kevin? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here this morning. Awesome, awesome, awesome. As always, want to remind our listeners that you can hit us up on social media, at Podakesis is where you can find us. Leave us a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts, and leave us some comments. Let us know what you think, and share us with your friends. Uh, Dr. Watson, we're so glad to have you. So this is a special episode. We're not going to get into the uh, catechis- catechism today, um, uh, but we are glad to have you, uh, both um, Alan, myself, and Jim, speak for Jim, are, are fans of you. We got your books, and we read your blog, and all that stuff. We Saw you at New Room and um, are excited to have you on. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, what you teach, what some of your passions as a scholar are. Yeah, thanks. Well, first of all, thanks for buying my books because that's our strategy for our kids' college. <laughs> Amen, stuff, brother. So hey, amazing. there you go. I like it. <laughs> um, I So I started a PhD several years ago in um, Methodist history and was particularly looking at the role of small group formation in early Methodist discipleship and its role in really kind of in the early Methodist revival. I ended up focusing on my dissertation um, on the band meeting in early Methodism, which was a small group of three to five people divided by gender that was actually confession of sin for the sake of growing in holiness. Uh, and then wrote from there on the class meeting, which was the, so bands were optional, but highly encouraged. And we're most sort of specifically focused on growth and holiness and the pursuit of entire sanctification or Christian perfection. But as I was thinking about kind of how does this connect to the local church, I felt that I needed to step back to look at the class meeting because that was the group that was required for everyone who was a Methodist, um, including when the Methodist Episcopal Church was established in the United States for about 75 years. And so it seemed like the United Methodist Church and most Wesleyan denominations don't have Wesleyan small group formation in place in the way that it did for a long time. And so if you're going to rebuild it, you need to start at the beginning level, not at the most intense level. So I wrote a book called The Class Meeting that was just an attempt to introduce people to what had happened in, in the past uh, and, and then to make an argument for reclaiming it. And that's kind of how I work as a historian is to mine the you know, the riches of the past to kind of look for places where I see fruit and where it looks like there was faithfulness um, that led to, to lives transformed, people responding to the gospel and lives being transformed by the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to sort of say, look, it, it looks like there's still living water in these wells, but they've mm-hmm. been plugged. And so the, the mm-hmm. I think part of my calling has been to kind of redig the ancient wells um, and to, to, to just call people to drink from them again. And so mm-hmm. most recently I've, I've looked at entire sanctification and kind of its role and just hoping that in kind of times of realignment and, and whatever it is that's happening in the kind of Methodist world that um, that new iterations wouldn't be formed without at least deeply wrestling with the doctrine that Wesley said was the reason that God raised us up and the Holy Spirit breathed life into us. And so for me, like being a Methodist is a commitment to 
a particular um, set of beliefs, and the most distinctive is the doctrine of entire sanctification that is enlivened by a particular set of practices, and the most distinctive is commitment to, to life together in small groups. Um, when we had um, Ken Collins on um, our last kind of special episode, he he differentiated being a historical scholar, a historical theologian, versus a systematic theologian because of the context and the the thing, the richness of the historical context that can come out um, in teaching us theology. And that's exactly what I'm hearing you say too: mm-hmm. is that it's not just about the dates and the people, but there's a there's a way of being of and believing that comes out of these contexts um, that is ancient, but is also still uh, got a lot of life in it that could give us life. Um, so that's good. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. So, um, well, I just let me just let me just stop yeah. right there, Brett. Uh, I just want to give a testimony because, and we'll get into this because mm-hmm. your your book, Perfect Love, um, draws on the the idea of an entire sanctification with the practice. Um, of small groups. And, yeah. um, these guys know, I've, I've mentioned the class meeting, uh, a bunch of times, yes. uh, the yes. book, your book, particularly not yes. just, not just the idea of class meeting. Um, cause, uh, we've used it here to launch our small groups at our church. Um, and so we use your book, we get people the idea of the, of what it is and the argument for it. And then, you know, mm-hmm. the whole premise of the book is to put down the book and start, start your class meeting. And so we've done that. And, and I'll just tell you, the the class meeting is pandemic proof. Um, mm. the, yeah. It is it is uh, small groups. Um, the class meeting particularly were able to continue to meet uh, throughout yeah. the 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 pandemic. It actually is what kept our church together um, mm. when we couldn't meet as a yeah. as a whole body. And so, yeah. um, I mean, I have testimony after testimony of people who say, you know, my my small group helped me get through the pandemic. Um, mm. And so, um, it is an honor and a joy to have you on today, just personally. Um, so, um, yeah. So there's your Man, blurb. So. The se- there's your blurb for the second edition, uh, Kevin, <laughs> uh, when it comes out. Is uh, Alan Kaysen, uh small uh, the <laughs> cla- right. class that's class right. meetings are pandemic proof. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah well, and that's it's a good word because the most common question that I get from pastors about that book is. Um, basically, can you connect me to churches where this has been done and, and been oh, yeah. effective? Because um, yeah. people, it, it's surprised me, but people buy the argument really quickly. But then they want to know, like, how do I actually do this? And where yeah. where are places that are farther ahead of us and kind of yeah. re-implementing that? Right. So reach out to Alan. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Go to Alan. Alan Kaysen, everybody. Um, well, Alan challenged me with that over the pandemic where I've been making excuses for starting a um, young adult kind of you know, that post-college, but before 30 age group that tends to get left behind. Um, and, and so it was, I mean, Alan said something very similar to that and just kind of in, in passing in a text. And I was like, well, I need to just quit making excuses and do something with this. And it, and it worked and it's working even now. Um, yeah. so that's good. Well, I, it's hit me and, and kind of the transition, which we may talk about from being at a, a place like uh, a research one university to being anchored back in the local church as, as a part of the pastoral staff that it's really hit me that, you know, we, we require people to spend three years in full-time study. Sometimes it takes more than that um, to, to become pastors. But one of the things I've never heard anybody say when they graduate from seminary is that they felt like they were really prepared well to disciple people. Ooh, um, yeah, and yeah, yeah. and yeah. I think that 
you guys are addressing one part through kind of the main the main note that your podcast hits on catechesis, which is desperately needed in the church, but also just like how do you how do you come alongside other people and and yeah. not just offer Christ to them initially, but actually raise them up in the faith, teach them how to read scripture, teach them how to pray, walk, just yeah. walk with them through the questions they have. And um, so that's something that's been been fun to be working on, but also like super convicting that yeah. um, this is unfortunately for for the in my sense is the vast majority of United Methodists and other Wesleyan denominations, like it's not our strength. Um, yeah. And it's, it's actually something that should be the strength of every Christian church. <laughs> well, and it's like, I, yeah, I mean, I love, I love sort of the synergy that's like the, you being on here with us dealing with the catechism, you're drawing out the class meeting and entire, the, the idea of our entire sanctification. I mean, these are all, these are, these are old things that need to be brought up again, that we need to drink again, as you say, from the wells. Yeah. Um, so tell us, um, you kind of alluded to it. Um, wh- where have you been? Where are you now? And, and what's, what is going on? And, and, and just tell us what, what's, uh, where you are right now. Yeah. So the, I mean, the, the kind of middle length version, I, um, after seminary, I pastored a church in Oklahoma, an awesome small town church called Lamont United Methodist church. Um, really interesting town and there were 450 people roughly in that town. Um, and we averaged 85 in worship. So it was a really strong church for that size town and just amazing people. And, um, and it was the, that I learned from that church, it was the strength of the laity. You could send a super green, you know, really young pastor there and they couldn't mess it up. (laughs) The lady (laughs) was so strong and I just kept it going. Um, and then I, but I felt a calling when I was, when I was in that church to pastor seminary students who were preparing to become pastors. Um, I had a sense that that wasn't what was the kind of core motivation for many seminary professors. And there were a handful when I was in seminary that made, made a huge difference for seminary being a positive experience for me. So I applied for to PhD programs and honestly, every step of the way, I kind of, my attitude was, okay, God, I feel like you're calling me to this. So I'm going to knock on the door and it's not going to be opened unless you open it. Like it just knew the odds were against me kind of every step of the way. And um, I ended up getting into SMU uh, and was able to, to Ted Campbell was my advisor and uh, Billy Abraham was a, a major kind of mentor for me as well there. And then was the next step was like, okay, if, if I'm actually going to use this degree and teach uh, again, I'm going to knock on doors and you're going to have to open them. And I ended up being offered a, a job at Seattle Pacific University to, to teach at the School of Theology there and, and to help them um, basically get university Senate approval and to, to begin to train uh, United Methodist students in addition to free Methodist students, which is what that school was. So taught at Seattle Pacific for three years uh, and then was offered a, a job at Candler School of Theology at Emory University and uh, interviewed there. And again, just thought like there's this no way this is going to happen. And um, and then uh, Jan Love, who was my dean for seven years and a, a great boss, called me one day and, and offered me a job. And so um, it got us a lot closer to family. Um, uh, instead of a three-hour drive, it meant a four-hour, 14-hour drive to get home. So it still wasn't close, but it was a lot closer. <laughs> um, and so we were at Emory for seven years and um, got through the the you know, just a, a lot of different challenging things that happened in the church and in society and so forth. And, um, but I actually uh, earned tenure there and was, was really grateful to, for that affirmation from, from the faculty and administration at, at Emory, but just had a sense that um, the doors were closing and that I just had a sense of, of calling from God that it was, it was time to, again, kind of knock on other doors and, and had a sense that 
uh, the door that opened would be one that would be surprising to me and prayed about mm-hmm. that for a, an extended season and um, asked God to open the door he wanted to open and keep other doors closed. And I think that prayer was answered, but also asked the Lord to bring deep unity to mm-hmm. my wife and I, that we would both sense a calling to walk through the door that opened and that prayer was answered as well. And so it's kind of a combination of things. There were, there were a couple of opportunities that were presented to us, but we, we ended up saying yes to, to the chance to become a part of the, the pastoral staff at First Methodist Church in Waco, Texas. Um, and part of that was getting to, to see what was happening at the church, which was, was really interesting and encouraging to us. It uh, has multiple campuses across the city of Waco. And so lots of, you know, there's a really established and strong kind of main campus that's that's been around for a long time in the city. And then two churches that are basically being like restarted, relaunched uh, in really interesting parts of Waco in different ways. And so getting to kind of be a part of new things, but also maintaining and deepening growth and in, in places where it's already strong and healthy. And the idea was to, to, to build on the work and discipleship that had been done here, but to try to also like think through sort of systematically what how do you develop a discipleship system in a church that then can be in place and kind of keep running behind the scenes Uh, and the irony for me is that the the strength of this church is its sunday school ministry it has a really strong sunday school culture and um, so i've been really spending the first several months here trying to get to know that culture and and to honor it and to appreciate it um, and to to see how it fits within basically Christian education, as, as y'all are modeling, is a key part of discipleship. And so how do I understand and appreciate that? So it's a part of the system in a logical way, yeah. uh, but also then then build out kind of relational discipleship. Yeah. And then the other piece was that there, there was this seminary here connected to Baylor University, Truett Theological Seminary, that uh, had just sort of boldly announced that they were going to be starting a Wesley House of Study. Um, they Truett had applied for university Senate approval three different times and had been rejected each time. Uh, but then, you know, I, I don't remember, I don't know exactly when in the process it happened, but somewhere along the way, they were, there was this announcement that they had hired Billy Abraham to be the director yeah. of the Wesley house, the <laughs> inaugural director. And, um, and, you know, Billy is, is one of the the short list of people who really is like a hero to me, like somebody I wanted to be like, wanted to have his joy, wanted to have his, his courage and moral, moral courage and, and integrity. Um, and, and so just the chance to be in the city that he was in, um, we had a lot of, of really interesting conversations about what was happening. And, um, and I also had a, had a, a sense that I would have a chance to get to do some adjunct teaching. So I'd still get to have that part of my calling. And the folks at True at the faculty really graciously uh, offered me the kind of the status of affiliate research professor. So it just kind of means I have like an academic home still. I have access to the library and, you know, conversation with the scholarly community. So that kind of like combination and network was uh, was really exciting and, and, and what, you know, made us willing to, to walk away from tenure at a, at a wonderful university um, and to, to move our family. We were, we, we really liked where we lived. Our kids were all doing really well. So, you know, those things are extremely challenging and and decisions that you don't, you don't take lightly. But at the end of the day for my wife and I, it really was just like, we sensed God's calling. And so we wanted to be obedient to it. So let me ask you this, um, before we get really kind of deep into your book here, because I have been interested in this one issue for a while now. Uh, Truett is a historically Baptist uh, school, um, and there just seems to be these Baptist schools like HBU over out in Houston mm-hmm. 
um, yeah. hiring Wesleyan scholars uh, to come in and put out some really good Wesleyan stuff out of those schools. You've got the Wesley House at Baylor. Um, in my studies for catechism, there's a lot of uh, Baptist uh, scholars who are doing good PhD work on the revival of catechism. Um, yeah. And so that's coming out. Um, so what's going on in the Baptist world <laughs> with this that we Wesleyans may be missing um, uh, when it comes to stuff like the Wesley House at Baylor or HBU? Like what's, what's, are they, uh, how, how is that working? How, how is that, what do you think is, is it attributing to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. I can't say as much about about HBU as far as like attracting students. I, I've noticed the same thing. They've got some really interesting scholars that they've landed there. And it's it's it has kind of a critical mass of folks, but that I would say are doing like deep work on really difficult issues that it's it's sort of not socially acceptable to talk about at, at mainline academic mm. institutions. So I think that's part of it is they just have created a countercultural identity um, in that sense. But at Truett, what I I had a conversation with the the dean at Truett, Todd Still, um, pretty early on, and was was asking him kind of those like what what's Truett's identity and and how do you see like these the kind of Wesleyan evangelical students fitting in this space and and he'd had this this comment I, I'm not going to get the phrasing exactly right but basically what he said was you know we are we are a place that in the Baptist world is probably perceived as center and maybe even by some as left of center. Um, but for like United Methodists seem to perceive us as right of center in a way that they appreciate that they are grateful for. And he said, mm -hmm. what the way I would put it is that we're, we are committed to, you know, to basic orthodoxy. Uh, we are, are committed to being a multi-denominational seminary that trains, trains folks from different denominations. Um, and, he has he has a really nice elegant way of of kind of laying this out but the two particulars that he named he said but what part of what makes us distinct is that in the baptist world we are committed to the full recognition of women in leadership and ordination in the church mm -hmm. and he said but we also have a, a, a clear position that is traditional on on human sexual ethics um and my, it just kind of came out of me i said wow todd that's a very like unique slice of american christianity we i know yeah things yeah. together in that way and he said but it's the right slice and i think that that's why folks and you know from kind of my part of the wesleyan world are so excited about what's happening at the wesley house because there isn't there that that space doesn't you know there there are not many it, it, the other the alternatives have been overserved yeah and that specific kind of slice has been underserved even though it actually what he described would be offensive to most United Methodist leaders, even though it is actually the United Methodist Church's own position that he yeah, just exactly. described. Like right. he didn't say anything that disagrees with any of the official teachings of the United Methodist Church for 50 years. Yeah. Um, and so the but the other and the other piece, frankly, that I think is is also attractive to to some people is that the United Methodist Church is so obviously dysfunctional and unhealthy. Um, and I think there are people who are relieved and excited about the potential for going to a place that the United Methodist Church has no authority over, doesn't have control over, can't mm -hmm. force it to submit to processes, can't, you know, it, 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 true, it decided to just simply move forward in, in faith and trust that, um, that, that the, the right people at the right times would come and would be able to serve in churches and, uh, in the ways that they, God just kind of providentially provided for and, mm -hmm. Um, and so far, some of the, I think, most effective pastors in kind of the surrounding region um, 
some of them are true grads who are doing great work yeah. in, in Wesleyan and Methodist um, places. Now it, it complicates their ordination process because university right. Senate approval uh, matters in the present moment for ordination. But I also think that a lot of students starting seminary now are deeply like pretty comfortable to say that process no longer is relevant because right. the United Methodist Church won't exist one way or another in the form that um, it currently does by the time I graduate from seminary. So it just isn't relevant in the way. It yeah. To be, be particularly good. Yeah. Well, just to be a seminary student now um, uh, is, 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 a, is, a, is an act of faith. <laughs> yeah. um, not, not just in, in, in answering to your calling as a, to be a pastor, but you know, the uncertainty that lies ahead yeah, uh, in our denomination right. is, right. is, 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 is wow. You know, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, that was part of, you know, um, so, part of the backstory that your listeners may or may not know is um, so Billy Abraham, who really was the, the, the weight, the gravity um, who raised this up. It was, it was largely built on his name recognition and, and his, his authority. Um, he tragically and, and unexpectedly died um, in, in early October. And that was, it was stunning to me because he just, he seemed invincible. Um, and well, and he was at new room as well. Uh, he was the new room conference. Correct? He and, 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 yeah, he was at new and room. so uh, that was a month before. And, uh, yep. yeah. So, yeah, it was just a few weeks before. Right. Um, right. And, and, uh, and he had just gone to Costa Rica on a, on a, a trip there to do some teaching for the church in Costa Rica. And, um, anyway, so it was, and I, I actually ended up, stepping in to teach the class that he was currently teaching um, on Wesleyan theology and the the sense of of the students and me as well was just like we all knew that we deeply appreciated Billy but the the grief was and and loved him but the the grief was way more intense than than any of us I think would have expected it to be previously like the, the comment from many people was I had a grandparent die in the past year and and I, I've been grieving Billy's death in a way that has been more intense than that, which doesn't totally make sense to me, but like, yeah, yeah. is what it's been. And that was, that actually yeah. was my experience and it was several other students experiences as well. And so anyway, when they, when they asked me to, to step in as, as acting director um, a, after this happened, I um, wanted to, to do that because Billy has, has really broken open this space. And I, I didn't want that momentum to, to cease, you know, I mean, I can't fill his shoes. Someone like me can't fill, I mean, he's a once in a generation mind and talent, um, but I, somebody has to step in and kind of do what they can to keep things moving forward. And I just enthusiastically supported the vision that he had. And so for me, the, the thing I've, I've looked for throughout my career is, has been where can I serve where I can be for what what's happening without reservation and, and everything I've heard about what's happening at true at the faculty there their approach to theological education, it deeply is in service to the church. Um, it's not its not a place to prepare you to do doctoral work primarily. Um, it's a place where if you're called to serve the church of Jesus Christ, this is a place that will equip you to be a leader in the church. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, so I think part of it too, Alan, what, what you were saying reminded me that I think folks who come to Truett, they come out of this deep sense of calling that they want to be equipped well for the work that God has called them to. And when you're operating out of that place, it also helps you to, to move and trust that the doors will be opened at the right time, even if the path looks more complicated than it could be if you took a safer route. And, um, and it's, it's just, frankly, it's really exciting to be 
um, in a context where you're teaching students who have made those kinds of decisions. Because in, in my time in the United Methodist Church, there's just been kind of a lament for me that there haven't been very many people I've interacted with who have been making decisions operating from a place of faith and real belief in the Lord and that God's alive and active and cares about them and is involved in the details of their life. Instead, it's been this, like I've heard over and over again, you have a family to think about. You need, you know, just these like functioning as a practical atheist and how you make decisions about your life. And Mm. when pastors do that, it's, it's no wonder that our, you know, that the denomination is dying. Um, So anyway, that's, that's a mini sermon. I'll stop. No, no, no. Come on. Preach. preach No, I I mean, I, I, you know, um, Kevin, I, I I graduated from Candler. Uh, that's where I got my MDiv, um, mostly out of, uh, um, just from location, um, here in South Georgia and, and also nice, uh, scholarship money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and there was a lot of good things, but, uh, about my experience, but, um, I was also practically serving in the church at the same time, um, and driving there and spending, spending the weeks in Atlanta and coming back home on the weekends and serving the church. And, um, but I found a lot of students just in, in during my time there, this is, um, this is a little while ago. Um, they were, they were there and they had no idea what they wanted to do. Um, you know, there were, there were too many that were there trying to figure themselves out. And so, um, for me, I think, I think, I think you need to go to seminary. You need to go with a calling and, 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 and it sounds like Baylor is trying to equip people practically. I, I joke with church members all the time about, you know, and they joke with me and, and some of this is menial stuff, but it's like, well, did you learn that in seminary? Did that prepare you for seminary? And, uh, there's, there's a, there's, and there's a lot of things that seminary just doesn't practically prepare you for no matter where you go but there's a lot that it could uh prepare you for and and it really does sound like uh the wesley house is trying to do that for 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 pastors Um, yeah that's that's the sense that i have so far and like i'm one of the things i'm hoping to do i've i have the learning curve for me is very steep so i don't want to get too (laughs) far ahead of myself and you know saying things that I'm, i'm learning quickly and and learning a lot and still have a lot to learn kind of and you know as as we're moving forward but I know enough about the way that, for example, Truett does spiritual formation to know that there there's a deep concern for students' souls while they're in seminary, mm. um, and that that's been one of the laments I've had is I, I I want students like students come to seminary as you said, Alan, generally because God did something in their life. Sometimes they don't know exactly what it means, and so they're sort of working through that while they're sure. in seminary. But the thing I would say over and over again to students when I was teaching was don't forget like who God is and what God did that brought you here Amen. and yeah. and shift into functioning as if God wasn't a part of your life and wasn't active. Cause that's, he did something and that's, that's why you're in this place. And, and in the way that, tr- that Truett's curriculum functions, there's, they have covenant groups that I think we can, can step into and use the way they're intended to function, but also have them function as class meetings for Wesley mm. house of study students. Yeah. So that part of what I'm really hoping to happen is that, you have super rigorous, high-level uh, formation in scripture and in theology, so that you know how to teach the Bible and preach effectively and faithfully. Um, but also that you you have the ability to to have have been formed and prepared in small group dynamics and in discipleship, so that when you go into the church, you're not then like, oh, I don't know. I mean, you know, like you're thinking about did they teach you that in seminary? Well, you shouldn't have to go on Amazon and start just searching around for books on discipleship when you start pastoring because you realize that's important and you want to figure out how to do it. You actually should have guides who are walking you through it. And 
um, if you're going to make that kind of investment, right? It's insane yeah. to spend three years full time or four <laughs> yeah. um, in, in seminary and and get out and be like, huh, how do you actually <laughs> yeah. help someone become a follower of Jesus? Right. Well, I don't know about Brad, but I mean, you know, I, I didn't experience anything like a class meeting till I was a pastor. Yeah. So here, how, how am I, how am I able to, to, to teach and lead and, and implement them in the local church? If I don't even know, uh, I may know it's the right thing to do, but I've never experienced it for myself. And so that sounds amazing. I mean, I think that's exactly, I mean, yeah. not only should you be learning theology and doctrine and, and how to preach and so forth, but you ought to be, uh, be experiencing, um, you know, something like the class meeting. Yeah, I, I agree. I went to Asbury and for my MDiv, and I'm doing my DMIN, mm -hmm. finishing my DMIN there. And um, uh, they, I think, I thought I had pretty good training on discipleship. I took, I found kind of, I loved that, so I took classes for that. Um, pretty good training in there. But it wasn't until I started my DMIN that they actually put it into practice with these what they call legacy groups. Um, this kind of class meeting type thing. Um, and then it being in practice, I was like, oh, okay, I can kind of see what we're doing here. So in theory, when I left seminary and my MDiv, it was in my head, but I had to kind of figure it out and it took me a while. But um, when I got into the D-Men, I was like, I just wish they would have had that more on that end. Um, mm -hmm. And that sounds good, like at Truett, like they've got that going on. That's a good thing. Yeah. 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 All right, so let's um, let's kind of transition. Oh, I do want to say one last thing, man. Kudos to you for you know not just being locked into the ivory tower of the academy, which you know there's some good work that gets done in the academy. So I, I love you know the academy is is what it is, but I mean you are in a local church, and I think there is um, by being in a local church, you know what a local church needs. Like you don't forget that you don't, and so kudos to you for doing that. And uh, I just that's awesome. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been a blessing to be a part of this church. The, the staff is fantastic. The leadership's great, and it's it's just been awesome to get to preach some and yeah. and teach. I yesterday I taught a an early morning bi men's Bible study called Band of Brothers, and yeah. it was the senior pastor Ryan Barnett gave me the chance to teach that in the fall, and it was just it was awesome. So it's, That's it's awesome. been really fun. That's yeah. awesome. So you wrote this great book. And guys, it really is. We're not just saying this because Kevin's on the on the show. It it really is. <laughs> well, Brett, uh, both Brett and tune, I have tune had... in next week for the, the honest yeah, review. the honest <laughs> review of this book. Um, what I loved about Perfect Love, uh, recovering entire sanctification. Um, what I loved about this was how practical and accessible it was. It could have easily become a um, historical, theological, scholarly thing. Um, that that was for academics, and it, it could have been like a two-volume thing, you know, just this because there's so much meat there. But you had this uh, ability to be able to distill it down to make it very accessible and challenging. And that, look, look, this is part of our DNA. This is who mm -hmm. we are. Um, so what what you you did your scholarly work on bands and and, and class meetings. What drew you to the doctrine of entire sanctification? Oh, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, so when I was in seminary, I took Methodist history and doctrine from Doug Strong, who was one of my mentors mm -hmm. and just had a huge impact on my life. And um, and I remember the the lecture where he started talking about this. And um, there was something about that lecture where it was kind of like, the things that I've believed about the faith, but haven't had the ability to articulate, like he's, mm -hmm. he's like 
drawing the scaffolding like he's like putting it all together he did this lecture on the way of salvation and um you know it's and and he at one point he described entire sanctification as something like giving all that i know of myself to all that i know of god so that both are dynamic you know you're you keep growing in your relationship with god you keep growing in self-awareness and self-knowledge and so you can give more of the self you're you know of to more of the god that that you're learning about and, and growing in relationship with and um, when I was, a, I became a Christian when I was in, in middle school and, um, and it was like one of those things for me where I was like, if I'm like this, this is real. I was, I didn't have a need for like nominal Christian faith or wasn't, that wasn't going to do any work for me. I didn't come from like a, my, my parents weren't raising us in the church. And, um, and so I wanted to go to church because I wanted to learn how to follow Jesus. Like I was, I was interested in actually growing and, and I just had this sense from like, I remember reading the gospel of Matthew and feeling like I'm supposed to actually figure out how to give everything mm. to, to Jesus. Um, but I also never really felt like I had a whole lot of help in figuring out how to do that and was all too painfully aware how often I was falling short of that. And, right. and so this felt like a, a way to, to give voice to, and structure kind of to, to what I in, like sensed in, in my, my own spirit, just reading scripture um, and I, I love the kind of the, I mean, I, I confess I, I struggle with it and oftentimes feel like I, I fail to do it as well as I could, but trying to walk the line between like, you know, faith and works like that, yeah. you know, I, I love uh, Dallas Willard's grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Yes, and I, I think it's that kind of like that. I, I've, I feel a freedom. I don't feel like shame or condemnation and exerting myself to, to, to work out my salvation with fear and trembling, but it can be obviously problematic if I'm just doing the work and that's, that's the, the whole thing itself. And so entire sanctification helps me to kind of stay in that place of like despairing and my ability to save myself. Cause I keep finding how I'm falling short of, of the, the end goal, but also calling me to like keeping the end in view and calling me to, radical optimism that mm -hmm. i don't i'm not called by god to live a defeated life you know mm -hmm. as a follower of jesus but he's he's calling me and leading me to victory um, yeah. as as he's already already shown us yeah i was uh i was listening to uh brian russell's podcast uh this past week and he had um beth felker jones on um, mm. uh, and uh, she said and I, i'm i'm paraphrasing but she said that um, that Wesleyan's Methodists, I'm using that interchangeably, um, are uh, quote basically Christian, and she didn't mean that like uh, in the sense of well they're basically Christian. No, she yep. meant it as in foundationally they're yep. Christian. Um, but that uh, and so when you look at Methodists and Wesleyans in the kind of compared to other you know uh, Orthodox denominations, there's lots of similarities, lots yep. more similarities than differences. But she would say, and you say this in a way in your book, she says that, but sanctification seems to be the reasons why Wesleyans exist. Mm -hmm. um, and you used the term, uh, the phrase, grand depositum, that uh, this becomes mm -hmm. the grand depositum of the faith. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you see uh, sanctification being kind of that, uh, I'll, I'll just use this term, a DNA doctrine uh, for who we are. Yeah, yeah, so... For me, again, it, it's kind of what I said towards the beginning. Like I, I just look at what, like what were people saying who had authority when when things were most interesting in Methodism. And so, you know, when we were when we were doing great, when we looked most clearly like a spirit filled, fruitful 
movement, even experiencing revival at times. Um, we, John Wesley's saying, you know, and he lived through a long enough season of this to have pretty good perspective. I, I'm always kind of like mm-hmm. stunned to think there was a time when John Wesley could remember when there was no such thing as Methodism, right? right? Like yeah. it didn't exist at yeah. all. Right. And at the end of his life and famously in thoughts upon Methodism, he can say, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist in Europe or America. It's like, that's amazing, you yeah. know, <laughs> um, to get to that place. But then he says like, I'm, but I am worried about whether it'll matter that it exists. Like, right. is it going to be a, a rotting carcass or is it going to be a spirit breathed, vibrant um, movement still? And he says that, you know, in a letter he writes towards the end of his life, that the doctrine of entire sanctification is the grand depositum that God has lodged with the people called Methodists. And for the sake of propagating this chiefly, he appeared to have raised us up. So Wesley's saying, my sense is that the reason the Holy Spirit raised us up and breathed life into us was to teach this audacious optimism of yeah. grace, yeah. like that grace saves to the uttermost, saves yeah. all the way. And um, and for me, that is that that kind of radical optimism is needed because I think so many Christians are living defeated lives where they have extraordinarily low expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that then perpetuates like an indifference to to participating in worship or to to joining a small group or to reading scripture or to praying, because why, like, why would you do any of those things if you don't expect them? to actually lead to transformation and to to lead to greater health and wholeness in your own life. Um, You know, I I used to, so when I was in um, middle school, um, the popular thing back in the mid nineties was uh, this thing called witness wear, you know, t-shirts that had all kinds of like sayings and, you know, copying (laughs) uh, logos from companies and turn it into a thing. Anyway, it was cheesy. We should bring that back. I know you should do that with the podachesis. Like just, Uh, we we do need some merch. We do. We do need some good merch. We do. Do you desire to be saved from the wrath to come? Yes. (laughs) That would be, that'd be, come join the podachesis podcast. Be on a nice little uh, pullover. (laughs) Yeah. And then you could just have a, the statement, version flee from the wrath to come <laughs> dude we're hiring kevin as our merch uh I know, he's director our new merch guy yes yeah um add that to the college fund strategy um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, uh but you know those bumper stickers those t-shirts they had the you know one of the sayings was i'm not perfect i'm just forgiven and you know, it seems like we took it as a um, a sense of, um, of of positiveness. Like, you know, you know, I'm not perfect; I'm just forgiven. But it really is the most defeatist statement there is. Yep. Yep. Um, and and that I feel like so many of us in the church, you know, that that's What's we're saying this? that and trying to make it a a, a positive thing. Yeah, I mean, because I, I think actually what you're saying theologically is Jesus is not capable of saving me from <laughs> sin. He's just capable of forgiving me from repeated sin. Well, it's and, kind of, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And one, yeah, of, one of the places... I'm going to go ahead. So sorry, Kevin. It's the the same idea as uh, I'm a sinner saved by grace. You know, it's, it's the focus is on the sinner that I'm still going to sin. Um, and it is the idea that Jesus doesn't have the power to to save us from our sin than the power of sin. But, um, sorry, Kevin, go ahead. (laughs) No, you're good. You're good. I mean, so there were two key like stories that happened for me that, that caused me to feel more like, uh, persistence and like commitment to this one was teaching undergrad students when I was at Seattle Pacific and I just realized they were so we were a free Methodist institution but had predominantly kind of conservative reformed people and this is this is good timing because of the 
um, the success of the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, but right. it was in the, it was in the heyday of Mars Hill, which yeah. you could students from SPU would walk across the Ballard bridge to worship at Mars Hill. It was, it was probably a mile from, from the church. And um, I mean, from the school and anyway, and so there was this sense and and the classes I would teach of like, that's obviously impossible. And I, and I, I would like let them work through objections and I, I would push back as best I could, but I would deal with them on their face. But then I would eventually say to them, at the end, so I did a class in the basic Christian theology class, which all undergrads had to take on entire sanctification as a mark of our Wesleyan identity as a school. And at the end of the class, I would always say, so here's the deal. You're going to have to make a decision in your theology, whether you believe that the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension to the right hand of the father is more powerful in the lives of those who are in Christ or sin. Like you're going to have to decide which is most powerful and that if you reject entire sanctification, then you have to own that what you're saying is that sin is necessary in the lives of those who are in Christ, despite the witness of scripture and despite the wow. work of Jesus. Yeah. And that seems like a hard thing to say, to say that it, it's necessary. So I, I tend to like want to turn the tables and I can say, look, we can have pastoral and compassionate conversations about the actual struggles and challenges that people face as they're pursuing entire sanctification. That's one thing, but it's a different thing to just say, I don't believe that this is possible. It would be a bad thing to like offer this as, as possibility. Um, and, and I think that's a, you know, a significant thing. The second one sort of more briefly is just, I started learning about recovery groups and, and noticing that oftentimes when I would speak on class meetings and band meetings, people come up to me and say, I'm in a 12-step group. I'm a recovering alcoholic and 12 steps saved my life. And it sounds like what you're talking about. And so I started buying, you know, 12-step resources and reading about them. And, and the thing that really just wrecked me was that the most common, I, I just had it uh, not terribly long ago in a conversation I had with a group of men where somebody sort of leaned in at one point and just said, wouldn't testifying to entire sanctification itself disqualify? Like, wouldn't it prove that you're not entirely sanctified because you would be so arrogant to say yeah. that? Mm -hmm. And I, and I just, you know, I, I just said, you know, uh, I don't know if you know anyone who's in recovery from drug addiction or alcohol or pornography, like whatever the addiction would be. But I said, people who get to a place of saying that they're addicts, and then actually have a story of, of deliverance or extended recovery from their addiction. They, they don't ever sound arrogant to me when yeah. they tell their story, right? Because mm -hmm. they're owning right. the brokenness. Yeah. Right. Like right. I was powerless over this addiction. Who I was, was right. someone who drank to get drunk. Right. And I, I did that to the point of damaging the most precious relationships to me to like devastating consequences and harm not most importantly in my life, but in the lives of the people I love the most and did the most harm to. And so the story of how like I was rescued from that isn't like, look at me, I'm a hero. It is look at me. Like if not, if for me, I'd still be doing the same damn things. Yeah. But there was, there was a powerlessness that I discovered. And through the powerlessness, I found the power of God who yeah. did in me and through me what I was incapable of doing in myself and through myself. And yeah. And that story to me is always, it always feels deeply hopeful, but also deeply humbling. And so I started kind of thinking about the Christian life as like the analogy is we're all addicted to the ways of sin and death, like really addicted. And, yeah. and that what we need is recovery. And so getting to a place where you can say like, God has delivered me from 
outward sin for five years isn't arrogant. It is there, but by the grace of God, right? Yeah. Like I, if not for the grace of God sustaining me day by day, um, I would just be acting out and sinning constantly. Yeah. But that's not what scripture witnesses to or teaches. You know, first Thessalonians is, is one of the, the great passages. Like it's God's will that you be sanctified. Um, and, and he himself will do this. Like, and, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the NRSV, first Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, it's sanctify you entirely. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and God is faithful. He will do this. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's the way that I think some of these assumptions, the things that people use to press this back oftentimes sound nice kind of culturally, but they're actually vacuous intellectually oh, yes. and, and they're spiritually damaging. Right. Well, and they, in a lot of it, it's just that we're just choosing to ignore scripture. Um, I love in your book, you, you put, you put all of Romans six in, in, the, in one chapter. Like there's yeah, uh, so like, good. I mean, so how, how can you read Romans six and say that we're not supposed that, that we're supposed to still have sin in us? I mean, right. we're, we're supposed to live as slaves to righteousness. Um, yeah. But I, yeah. I just, I love that. And I know we're getting, we're getting yeah. to the end of our, our time together, but I love it at the beginning of you. So everybody read the book, first yes. of all, um, Perfect Love, uh, and you will learn what is and is not entire sanctification. There's two chapters on those. Um, you can also check out our our past archives, episode, I think, 28. 28, yeah. We, we talked about entire sanctification mm-hmm. as a part of the catechism. Um, I love at the beginning of the book, though, you talk about these different moments and these different um, people who experienced entire sanctification. And one of the emphasis was that you were making is that we don't talk about it. We don't testify about it. We don't um, we don't talk about it as pastors. And as we leaders. don't preach about it. We don't so, preach about it. Yeah. Um, and so real quick, um, right as I was reading this book, I had somebody in my church who passed away, um, mm-hmm. an older gentleman. And his funeral was on Sunday afternoon. I uh, had the service on Sunday, the scripture that I was preaching on, I don't even remember the scripture I was preaching on, but it lended itself to talking about sanctification. Mm. And I was encouraged by your book to, to bring him forth as an example of someone who is in my lifetime reached entire sanctification. Um, and, um, and you know what happened after the service? People kept telling me, I've only been here, I've only been here five and a half years. They kept mentioning they, they started mentioning other people who mm. they knew, who wow. they um, considered to have reached entire sanctification, you know? And so, you know, we've got to talk about it more. We we've did. got we to did. bring it up. We've got to draw from the well, as you as you started out with uh, mm. at the beginning. We've got to talk about these things more. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you. All right. Well, we're going to, uh, unfortunately, bring this to a close. Um, I know, right? We could talk about this forever. <laughs> forever and ever. So much good stuff going on at Truett. So much good stuff coming out of the scholarship of Kevin Watson and um, for the church. Thank you for what you're doing for the church. Um, I, we, we try to be with our guests, be very gracious to, to them um, because of their time commitments. But, man, the guests we've been having on are just top-notch folks who— um, it's not about their own uh, scholarship and their own place in the academia. They're, they're, y'all, y'all seem to be really. Let's build the church back up. Let's let's whatever's coming, whatever's coming in the new Methodism Wesleyan movement, whatever. We have an opportunity to do something pretty powerful by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's do it. Let's just quit making excuses and let's do it. And so, as a pastor who's been doing this for you know a decade and a half, if not a little bit more. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 
mm-hmm. uh, most grateful for you. Yeah. Um, so uh, for all our Potty Cumans, uh, be sure to uh, check us out on social media. Uh, you can find us at Potakesis on Instagram, Twitter, and on mm-hmm. Facebook. Uh, leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. You can email us at questions at podakesis.com. Um, we would love to get your questions and um, check out our show notes. We didn't even mention the show notes, but we're going to have uh, Perfect Love linked. We're going to have all kinds of stuff linked there, the class meeting, all the band meeting stuff you did with Scott Kisker. So uh, we're going to have all that linked in our show notes for this episode. Uh, um, Kevin, we're most grateful for having you on the show that you joined us in, uh, hopefully. In the future, you'll come back and actually do part of the catechism hey, with us. Uh, Kevin, before we leave, how, how can people get a hold of you? Yeah. Social media-wise or anything? Yeah, so I'm most active on Twitter, and my handle is just at Kevin Watson on Twitter, and uh, they can send me an email. The, the easiest one to name, I have three email addresses right now. The <laughs> easiest one to name is Kevin, Kevin at firstwaco.com is the, All the right. one that is best for sharing on, on air. Awesome, awesome, <laughs> yes. awesome. Well, thank you again, and Potic Humans, we hope you have a great day. Buy this book and, you know, frankly, read it, take it seriously, get in a small group, and uh, the Lord's going to bless you. I I know what he has with us, and so thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk to you all later.